We are officially starting our walk through the book of Matthew this week, which, like I said last week, I kind of snuck in a couple of pre-series weeks these past couple Sundays, but forget about that. This is the first official week. We're calling this series What Matthew Saw, because that's what this book is. It's written by someone who wanted followers of Jesus to have an account of Jesus's life and words and actions so they might learn what it means to follow Jesus into the world together. So we are planning, much like we did in our series on Jeremiah, to go straight through the book and see what Matthew saw as the important things to know about who Jesus was and is. For those of you who weren't with us through Jeremiah and who are just joining us, we each week will put together a podcast called The Backdrop, which goes into some of the background odds and ends that we came across in studying for the sermons, but which didn't really fit into the sermon itself for whatever reason. And in case any of you are interested in some of the resources that we have found helpful so far in studying for these sermons in Matthew, there are a few commentaries and books that we could recommend that are pretty different from each other, but depending on what you're looking for, might fit. The first one is a book called Matthew for Everyone. It's by a scholar named N.T. Wright or Tom Wright. It takes each individual chunk of Matthew and writes kind of a short devotional style reflection on it that does weave in some of the more scholarly stuff as well, but at a really accessible level. The second one, which is very different, is by a man named Stanley Hauerwas, and it is called a theological commentary. And it's more like essays on each chapter of the book rather than a scholarly commentary going verse by verse. And Hauerwas is kind of a, an old radical, <laughs> uh, radical in the sense of like, well, if the Bible says we should act this way or do this, then maybe we should actually do it. And he has a very distinct perspective. And that's one of the things I really like about it. I don't agree with everything he writes, but a lot of the stuff is really thought provoking and helpful to round out some of the drier, uh, more scholarly books that are available on Matthew. Um, And if you are looking for something that is in the more scholarly camp, there is a scholar, a New Testament scholar named Craig Keener, who has written a commentary on Matthew. It's called a socio-rhetorical commentary on Matthew is what he describes it as. And it very much is going verse by verse, looking at some of the background, cultural and literary aspects of the book of Matthew. So Keener's commentary is a great one if you do want to dig into the more scholarly side of Matthew. We are actually going to jump in a little out of order here in these first two weeks of this series because this will allow us uh, first to do Christmas closer to Christmas, (laughs) the stories that are in chapters one and two of Matthew. But more importantly, uh, we are going to do it a little out of order because chapters three and four provide a really helpful introduction to what this book's all about. And so by looking at them first, we can kind of get our bearings on what this story is that Matthew's telling. So we're looking at chapter three this week to start. And then next week, we will look at chapter four of Matthew, and then we'll jump back to the beginning and kind of go right through from there. And you will all be happy to know that this time we aren't using some strange translation. (laughs) For the most part, we will use either the NRSV or the NIV as we go through. Okay, so with all that said, we are going to start our series on Matthew by going back to Jeremiah. (laughs) Why, yes, I am a parody of myself sometimes. Thank you very much. But I promise there's a good reason for going back to Jeremiah just a little more. We left things in Jeremiah with the people having gone off into exile because they had refused God's repeated warnings that they were on a road marked by idolatry and injustice, a road that only led one place, which was death. 
Meredith has been getting through our endless quarantine existence by revisiting old favorite TV shows like Parks and Recreation and The Office. She actually has been listening to a podcast put out by two of the cast members of The Office. It's called Office Ladies, which she enjoys very much. And it goes one episode at a time with some behind the scenes stories and that sort of thing. And one recent episode was one where the manager character, Michael Scott, is out on a sales call with his assistant, Dwight Schrute. And Michael has just gotten a new GPS unit in his car, which in typically Michael fashion, he has gotten obsessed with obeying because of some other dysfunction in his life at the time of some sort. And at one point, the two of them are driving along a lake when the GPS voice tells them to turn right. And Michael swings hard on the wheel. And Dwight says, no, she means bear right, like along the lake. And Michael says, no, she said, turn right, and continues with his hard right turn. Dwight gets increasingly animated because, Michael, there's no road here. You're driving right into the lake. She means bear right. But Michael dogmatically follows the instructions and drives right into the lake. Jeremiah is like Dwight. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that might be the first time that comparison has ever been made. The prophet who sees where the path is headed and begs for the people to turn around. Michael is like the people blindly following their idols along the path, oblivious to where that path leads. Jeremiah and the other prophets had offered an alternate path, one of putting trust in God, a path that led to life. But the people had followed the path they were on all the way to exile in the lake. I mean, Babylon. But Jeremiah and the other prophets had promised that there would be a future on the other side of exile, when Israel would be restored to their status as the people of God, when God would get things back on track. Because the problem all along with the people of Israel being on the wrong path was not that God's feelings were hurt, although they were, or that God is an authoritarian who demands to get his way or else, which God is not. The problem was that they had a job to do as God's people. Their job was to partner with God to fill the whole earth with God's goodness and justice, to be a holy people, not so that they could be proud of their own holiness, but so that the whole world would see who God is through the distinctly different sort of community they were together. And so Jeremiah's whole message was to plead with the people to get back to being who they were supposed to be all along for the sake of the whole world. People needed to repent meaning not just think different thoughts about God or stop doing some of the bad stuff you've been doing, but instead get off the path you're on and start going a different direction altogether. Do a U-turn. Orient your whole life differently by putting your trust in Yahweh instead of in idols or material wealth or political power or family ties or wherever. And the hope that Jeremiah pointed forward to on the other side of the exile was that the day would come when Israel would be back from exile not just in the sense of being physically back in the promised land instead of being physically located in Babylon, but they would be back from exile in the sense of fully living out their purpose as God's people, partnering with God to bring God's goodness and justice to the world, able to serve and worship Yahweh again, not under the oppression of foreign nations. And that was key because when they were not under the oppression of foreign nations, that meant they would be able to form their society to reflect who God is. That's what it would mean to be God's people again on the other side of Babylon. As Jeremiah 30 verse 8 says, On that day, I will break the yoke from on your neck and tear off your straps. You won't serve foreigners anymore, but will serve Yahweh your God and David your king whom I will set up over you. They would be a part, in other words, 
of what's sometimes called the kingdom of God, the place where God is in charge, but not in some brutal authoritarian way. Instead, the place where people willingly align themselves with God's goodness and justice and become a part of the people of God, the family of God, which is living out that goodness and justice for the sake of the world. It's what Israel was chosen to do from the beginning of Israel as a people. It's what humanity was intended to do from the beginning of humanity as a species. It's what the return from exile would look like. The kingdom of God would come in all its fullness, and the people of Israel would join up with God, bringing God's kingdom, which is, again, God's goodness and justice to the ends of the earth. That's the hope. That is the dream of Jeremiah and the other prophets in the Old Testament. And it's not at all what was going on in the first century when Jesus arrives. People were in the promised land. The temple was standing and they could worship Yahweh there, but they weren't part of a kingdom of God. Not really. They were still under the yoke of an oppressor. It's just a new empire, Rome, instead of the old one, Babylon. And they weren't living a communal life that reflected God's goodness and justice to the nations. In fact, they were right back in the same cycle that we traced over and over in Jeremiah, complete with judgment coming their way. And so Matthew begins the story of Jesus's adult life and ministry in chapter three with a story that is meant to invoke so many Old Testament images in the minds of the reader, because here they were again on the same old road that leads the same old place. Matthew 3 starts, In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the core message of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Kingdom of heaven, by the way, is how Matthew says the kingdom of God probably out of respect for some of his Jewish audience's sensibilities that the name of God shouldn't be spoken out loud. And so you say heaven instead, because heaven is where God is. So it kind of stands in for God in the sentence. But in any event, the kingdom of God has come near. That's good news, right? That's what we've been waiting for since Jeremiah's day, since the exile. Finally, it's come. But what comes first in John's announcement? Repent. Turn around. It's Jeremiah all over again. You're walking down the wrong path, the one that leads to death. Turn around, repent, get on the path to life, the path that leads to the kingdom of God. Chapter three goes on, speaking about John the Baptist. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Almost every detail in this story is meant to bring the Old Testament to mind. John dresses and acts like Elijah. 
He is out in the wilderness on the River Jordan, just like Moses led the people through the wilderness to the River Jordan and the Promised Land. He is speaking of the wrath to come and a tree that's going to be cut down and thrown into the fire, just like many of the prophets did. Jeremiah, for example, speaks of Israel as an olive tree in chapter 11, verses 16 and 17 of Jeremiah. Flourishing olive, beautiful with shapely fruit, Yahweh once called you. To a great roaring sound, he set fire to it, and its branches have broken. Yahweh armies who planted you, he's declared evil upon you, on account of the evil of Israel's household and Judah's household. John is intentionally referencing passages like that in his warning of judgment. The words John puts into the mouths of the religious rulers, but we have Abraham as our ancestor are in substance almost identical to the words Jeremiah put into the mouths of the religious rulers of his day. If you were with us, you may or may not remember that the prophet Jeremiah is especially critical of the religious leaders who, in Jeremiah's view, are putting their trust for safety in their status as the people of God instead of in God self. And Jeremiah mocks them by putting this refrain in their mouths, this is Yahweh's temple, Yahweh's temple, Yahweh's temple. Meaning, we're the people of God. This is God's temple. Surely we're safe from destruction because God would never let the temple be destroyed, right? And Jeremiah and John both say, wrong. You're children of Abraham genetically, but not in terms of where you put your trust. And that's what matters. Because when you put your trust in things other than God, you need to repent, turn around, get on the path to life because all the other paths wherever they might seem to lead, in reality, they all lead the same place, emptiness and death. What I'm saying in all of this is that Matthew starts us right where Jeremiah left us off. It's just that now the future hope of God's kingdom coming has entered the present. It's time, time to choose to either align ourselves with the goodness and justice of God, become a part of God's kingdom, or to continue on our paths that lead where they inevitably lead. What'll it be? And one of the things that's interesting about what John is doing out in the wilderness is that he is enacting that message. Repent and put your trust in God. Turn around and get on a whole new path. Be baptized. Baptism was not a thing that Jews did. Baptism was a thing that Gentile converts to Judaism did in order to show that they were leaving that old life and beginning a new one. Now, John says, you all are so much on the wrong path that you can't trust your status as genetic descendants of Abraham. Even you need to repent and be baptized if you want to experience the life that will come with the kingdom of God. Repentance is the thing that is needed for the exile to end, for God's kingdom to come, for us to get back on track as the people of God. We need to put our trust in God instead of all the things we're putting our trust in right now. This is what the book of Matthew is all about. Good news. The kingdom of God is here. So repent. Make sure that you have put your trust in God, not ethnic status and religious observance like the Pharisees did. Make sure you have put your trust in God, not the temple and accommodation to Rome like the Sadducees. Make sure you've put your trust in God, not your hopes for political revolution like many others of the time had. Make sure you've put your trust in God, not in going along with the Romans and hoping they'll protect you like some others of the time did. Those paths 
John is saying, all lead to death and destruction, just like they did in Jeremiah's day. And this would actually come to pass in AD 70, when the Roman armies marched into Jerusalem because they were sick and tired of all the revolts that kept coming out of Palestine. And so they marched into Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple, just like in Jeremiah's day. New empire, same result. The paths lead where they lead. And the choice put in front of the people of John's day is the same as the choice put in front of the people of Jeremiah's day is the same as the choice put in front of us today. Do we repent? turn around, start walking the path that leads to life? Or do we keep putting our trust in all the shiny things that promise us life, but give us only death in the end? That is the heart of Matthew's gospel, what Matthew saw and wants us to see as well. And as we will see in these coming weeks, everything else in this book orbits around this idea. The kingdom of God has come. It's a kingdom that brings life to all who are a part of it. And through it, life goes out to the whole world. Repent and trust God. God's kingdom is right here. Become a part of the kingdom.